to the ninth chapter of Luke this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22, uh, which contains life's most important question. And I've got to be honest with you, I wasn't able to get through, uh, even though there's just four verses, uh, we're going to pick up a couple next week. Uh, but it is, in fact, the single most important question you could ask about any subject in any time or about anything, and that is the question of, who do you say Jesus is? Because how we answer that very question has not only ramifications for this life, but it also, and more importantly and more profoundly, has eternal ramifications for the life to come. It was kind of interesting as my wife and I were driving through downtown Peoria this last Friday on our way home from Omaha, Nebraska. We looked up on a sign on the building on top of a 10-story building, and I pointed and I said, well, look, there's sermon prep for me. And she said, what is it? And I said, look at that sign. It just simply says on a huge billboard, Jesus is dot, 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 with the presumption that you fill in the blank or you fill in the phrase to answer that riddle. And so that question of who is Jesus, who do you say that he is, is still a question that is being asked some 2,000 years later after he had asked it. And those consequences and those ramifications for answering that question correctly are still just as important today as it was back then for the disciples. But many people throughout time have tried to answer that question. And sadly, most people get that question wrong. The majority does not answer it in the right way. And that really shouldn't come as a surprise to us, because if we can recall Jesus' exhortation in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. There are two ways. There's two gates. There are two eternal destinies. And yet, very clearly, Jesus tells us right away that there are many who will reject him. Many who will deny him as Lord. Many who will spurn his saving and atoning work on the cross. And there are many who will spend eternity in hell who reject him. But on the other end of the spectrum, we find that there will be few who submit to his lordship. There will be few who depend on his righteousness and his atoning work on the cross. And there will be few who find eternal life in him. So it really shouldn't surprise us to know that there are many who answer the question of who do you say Jesus is, and they get it wrong. They totally miss the mark. Some have tried to answer that question by saying that Jesus was a prophet. In fact, he was one of the greatest prophets of all time, such as the millions who embrace Islam. But he certainly was not God. Likewise, there's millions of Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that Jesus was a created being who did not exist in eternity past, but at some point God created him and he certainly didn't possess deity and he was not God incarnate. You have millions of Mormons 
who believed that Jesus was the result of a physical relationship between God and Mary, and that Jesus is a God, and that's a little g, but we humans can also become a God, again, little g. And in case you just weren't sure if Mormonism and biblical Christianity were the same or not, they also teach that Jesus was the spirit brother of Satan. The idea, for your information, is found nowhere in Scripture. And then you have the Jews, who have obviously denied him as being the promised Messiah, the Christ of God, and thus there are millions who continue to live in their spiritual blindness. Some have tried to answer the question of Jesus' identity by claiming that he was a wise sage, right? He had great ethical principles with which we can try to pattern our life after. He had great life principles, and he was just the ultimate life coach for us. And if we just follow the pattern of his life, if we just have our best life now, we can have the American dream today, right now, in this life, and be happy, healthy, and successful. And sadly, a lot of this, ladies and gentlemen, is done under the banner of Christianity. It's really just a self-help, self-esteem, self-serving, human-centered philosophy with a sprinkle of Jesus on top. It's like having a cupcake with candy-colored sprinkles where Jesus is those decorative colored candle sprinkles, but he's not the substance. You can have all the pleasures of the world, you just need to add a little Jesus to complete life for you. Still, there's been others who have said that Jesus was a fictional character. He's just made up by wishful thinking that uh, was devised by crafty storytellers from the ancient Near East. Albert Schweitzer, who tried to find the historical Jesus in his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, came to the conclusion that Jesus never existed. And there's just an endless supply of supposed scholarly work from religious institutions and just volumes and volumes of books and writings and articles that try to answer that basic question of who is Jesus Christ? There's false religions, false philosophies, false humanistic assertions, all leading to a false conclusion about who Jesus is. But what we think about Jesus is of utmost importance, certainly for this life, but also for the life to come. It has eternal, everlasting consequences. So let's begin to look at our account this morning. It's just four verses. It's a very brief account, but it's a very important one. And like I said, I got through two, so we'll pick up the next two at the, uh, next week. But you might say that this is a high point or a pinnacle moment for the disciples. But as we're going to see from our text... Jesus is not going to leave them up there for very long. We'll see that next week. But let's read our text together this morning, starting in Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, God's Word says this, And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and he instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, 
the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we just pray that our hearts and minds would be instructed, that we might glorify you more as a result of what we take in, Lord. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very words we heard read to us this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in typical Lucan style, he moves right through the ministry of Jesus, sometimes at a very rapid pace, and this is certainly one of them. As Luke was so moved by the Holy Spirit, he recorded for us the feeding of the 5,000, and then he went right into the questioning of the disciples as to his identity. But in Mark 6.45 through 8.26, there are seven other important events that happen between the feeding of the 5,000 and this question that Luke does not record for us. In between the feeding of the 5,000 and the questioning of the disciples, Jesus also walks on water. He heals in Gennesaret. He has a confrontation with the Pharisees about eating and with unclean hands. He'll heal a Syrophoenician's daughter. An additional 4,000 people are going to be fed on another occasion. He'll have another confrontation with the Pharisees who seek after a sign. A blind man will also be healed in Bethsaida. And so there's a lot more going on for here for what's happening that Luke just does not record for us. And so you might wonder and you might start to think, all right, just trying to question the Bible's authenticity. Where's all that information? Why doesn't Mark and Luke match up perfectly and even Matthew and John, for that matter. But there's a couple things we've got to remember. Number one, the first thing is, we should be thankful that God gave us one gospel, let alone four, right? That reveal Jesus Christ. Each of these different and unique authors give us a, a different perspective, and they're written for different backgrounds, different audiences. And so, as we look at these different accounts, we need to understand that they're not contradictory but they're complementary, right? We should be even more skeptical of it if it was like a word-for-word identical translation for a copy of each other. But Luke does not record every single event in the life of Jesus, every single word that he said, because it's just like John said at the end of his gospel, that if he would even begin to try to do that, that even the whole world itself could not contain all of the books that would have to be written about Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to understand is that Luke may have been conserving space. Now that might seem funny to us because we can go to Office Depot or whatever and get more reams of paper and type out and those types of things, but he's writing on a scroll, something you rolled up, right? Just imagine two toilet paper rolls connected, okay, for a bad illustration, but... He's writing on this scroll, and it would have a definite length to, us, uh, to it. But the Isaiah scroll, take, take this in mind, the Isaiah scroll that was discovered in the caves of Qumran had the complete testimony of Isaiah on it. And that was made out of leather, and the thing was 23 feet long as they unrolled it. It was bigger and heavier the more you had to write. And so you just, a big book is an awkward book, right? 
And so Luke may have simply not chosen to chronicle each and every detail in the life of ministry of Jesus Christ because he may have had been looking down at his scroll that he had to come rolling as he would write and see that he's got to come to an end. He's got to make some decisions about what he's going to chronicle and what he's not. And the other thing you need to understand is that the writing in those days, we enjoy these chapter headings and these verses. They didn't have that luxury back then. They wrote with no letter spaces sometimes and no punctuation. It is block for block, line for line, dot, 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 dot. And so we, don't, we have this luxury of these chapter headings and verse uh, designations, but Luke didn't have that in his time. He wrote solidly one word after another. All right? And so one thing else we need to know is that it, they were codices. These were the forerunners to books that we know. Codices were bound on the side before scrolls were, and they appeared in about 200 A.D. So Luke's got this limited form, this limited way that he can write and communicate everything that he wants to tell us about Jesus Christ. But what we need to know most importantly about these different events that Mark records for us is about the disciples' reactions to those different miracles. Because when we understand where they were in their understanding of Jesus shortly before these miracles, and then where we are in our text today, it becomes even more astonishing for us. For example, after the feeding of the 5,000 and the collection of the 12 basketfuls, Jesus walks on the water, right? And they see him coming at him. It's the fourth watch of the night. And they think it's a ghost, and they are all just terrified. But he tells them, hey, take courage, and do not be afraid in Mark 6.50. And after that, he jumps into the boat with them, right? The wind stops, and it says that they were utterly astonished. But here's the key. In Mark 6.52, it says... For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. I want you to look at Mark chapter 8. Flip over there, if you will, with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, so one book back. Mark chapter 8. I want you to look at verse 14 with me. Mark chapter 8, looking at verse 14, it says this, And they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousands, how many basketful of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets fulls of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. Verse 21 says, and he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Right? It's right here, right at this point, as Matthew records for us in Matthew 16, and that Luke just moves right into from the feeding of the 5,000 to the questioning of his identities, that the disciples finally get it. 
the scales are taken off their eyes, right? They start to see the true identity of Jesus Christ. The fog that existed in their minds and their hearts has been lifted and cast away. Suddenly they are high up and above the clouds and they can see far and wide from the valley below them that they were formerly in. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the great miracle in this text. Why is that? Because this is the supernatural working of God's Spirit in their lives. This is why Jesus could answer Peter in Matthew 16, 17 in the correlating account and say to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is why Jesus can say in John 6, 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. This is why Jesus can say in John 6.44 that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This is why John wrote in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, right? Not your family inheritance, nor the will of the flesh. You can't just strong arm yourself into the kingdom nor the will of man, in case you didn't understand the previous point, but of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, thank God for the buts in the Bible, right? But of God. This is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says that Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's a most reasonable thing to be a Christian, but you do not come to Christ by simply reason alone. And no, how, no matter how much empirical evidence you give to someone about who Jesus Christ is, and they continue to struggle, they don't need more evidence. That they need is the supernatural working of God's Spirit in their lives. That's why boasting about your salvation is never a biblical thing for you to do because your salvation is God-wrought. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You're not smarter than everyone else. You didn't just happen to be born into the right family. You didn't just inherit the right set of beliefs and say to yourself one day, I've decided to follow Jesus. It's just something I wanted to do. You were dead, but God made you alive. You were a stranger and an alien, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which with we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, as Titus 3 tells us. And ladies and gentlemen, that is me today. I don't know why I'm up here standing before you. I'm I'm a first-generation Christian. I have no idea, but God has been merciful to me. That is why I'm here for you today. If you are a Christian here this morning, you need to understand that you too have had the supernatural working of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit in your life to bring about your salvation. Do you understand this? There was a point in in your life when the lights came on and you saw Jesus Christ as your glorious Savior. There was a point when you were actually spiritually dead and you were made alive by the Spirit of God. There was a point when God awakened your mind and He illuminated your heart. And just like when Jesus called the dead man Lazarus from the tomb, He called you by name to walk in newness of life. So we need to understand where these disciples have come from. 
so that we can grasp how simply incredible this account is here in Luke chapter 9. But Luke, in his very typical staccato narrative, goes right from the feeding of the 5,000 to the greatest question that Jesus asks, and he says, who do you say that I am? He gets right down to brass tacks. So in verse 18 in our text this morning, it says, And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? So Luke uses this phrase, and it happened, to transition right into the meat of what he wants to get to. And he does this about a dozen times throughout his account. But we know from Matthew 16, just to get our bearings here, that they are in the region of Caesarea Philippi which is north of the Sea of Galilee, and it's on the slopes of Mount Hermon. It's in today where modern-day Dan sits, and it is right on the Israeli-Lebanon border. It would be the extreme northern border of Old Testament Israel, and they are withdrawing there, and they're getting away from the crowds to get a bit of solitude. But before Jesus gives them their two-question exam about his true identity, the first thing we notice is that we find him praying alone. More than any of the other gospel writers, Luke emphasizes and mentions the frequency with which Jesus would pray. In Luke 3.21, we find Jesus praying before his baptism. In Luke 6.12, we find him slipping away to the mountain to pray, and it says he did so throughout the whole night to God before the choosing of the twelve. And as we'll see in the next couple of weeks before his transfiguration, we'll see him slip away to pray. And so before each new phase of his ministry, we find Jesus in communion praying to the Father. And that really begs the question for us this morning. How much time do you actually spend in prayer? How much commitment do you actually make in daily supplications and confessions and adorations before God. If we would all say yes and amen to the fact that prayer is one of our greatest heavenly weapons that we have at our disposal, if we would say yes and amen to the fact that through prayer we have access to the one who has more than enough abundant resources for, and provisions for us, if we would say yes and amen to the fact that prayer is one of the most basic tenets of our faith and it is a necessary one at that, then why is it that we spend so little time in prayer? It was said of Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, that he said that he spent the first two hours of his day in prayer. And you want to know what else he said about it? He said it's hard work, right? Distractions in this world abound, and there are certainly abound in our cold hearts towards God. Robert Murray McShane once said, A man is what he is on his knees before God, and nothing more. And I would bet we all in this room need to repent of our prayerlessness, me included. We all need to be a praying people, and it takes work. It takes commitment for us to do. And you want to know one of the first steps that you can do to take to be a more praying person? You can pray and ask God to help you be more prayerful. Very simple, right? Pray and ask God to give you a more intimate and a more dependent, be dependent upon Him through prayer. Ask Him to help you commune more fervently with Him. But we see in our text Jesus praying alone, but yet the disciples were nearby. 
And so then he asked them, who do the people say that I am? In other words, he's asking him, asking these guys, hey, what's the word on the street, right? What's the court of public opinion say about me? And we know Jesus isn't probing for information because he isn't sure what they're going to answer, right? But he's using this to lead them to something. He's trying to draw them away from what everyone else is saying about him. Just as he warned the disciples about the Pharisees and told them, he said, beware of them, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees because although they have the appearance of godliness and holiness and righteousness and a right relationship with God, they really don't. They're a brood of vipers. They're white-washed tombs full of dead men's bones. And so he's going to lead them away from the court of popular opinion about who he is. So they give a couple answers in verse 19 there. He says, it says, uh, they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. So the first answer that they give is that of John the Baptist. Now that might sound a little strange to us because of light what we've, in light of what we've studied about John and what we already know of him, but more than likely the people only knew about John the Baptist by reputation. You, you couldn't get on YouTube or GodTube or in the first century, I guess it was YahwehTube or whatever, uh, but you couldn't get on there and watch sermons from your favorite Old Testament prophet. It just didn't happen, right? And so what you knew was transmitted orally to you. People would come and tell you stories, right? It was like uh, the tin can with the string, right? You're trying to decipher what was been said. And so they, they make the connection in their mind that these two are associated somehow. They were cousins after all. They both garnered large crowds, and they both preached a message of repentance and the kingdom of God. And so some even thought that maybe John had risen from the dead because that's what some of them told Herod back in verse uh, 7 of chapter 9. But the second person that tallies up the next amount of votes was the prophet Elijah. Now why Elijah? Why not some other named prophet? Well, this is because of Malachi's prophecy in Malachi 4.5, which says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so as these pious Jews were looking for that prophecy to be fulfilled, and they're hearing all of this flurry of miracles and all this buzz coming throughout the land, right? They thought it might be in fact, Elijah, who has come back again. In 1 Kings 17, by the word of the Lord, Elijah had predicted a drought. And God had sent ravens to bring bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the night. And then shortly after that even, Elijah went to Zarephath to a widow's house and he raised a son from the dead. And so we can kind of see how they might make this connection with Jesus feeding all these people and raising people back from the dead. But remember way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 17 of Luke, when the angel came to Zacharias, he said that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. This prophecy was fulfilled in John the Baptist, but the people wouldn't know it. And so as they hear these stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 and the raising people back from the dead, they're naturally trying to make this connection that this might in fact be Elijah, who was promised who had come. But then the last person or groups to get the most votes 
is the undecideds, right? We love political things. The undecideds say this, right? They just don't know who is causing all this buzz in Israel, right? But they did know that they were in a time and a place where something great was happening. And just like the mighty men of old, men of who they had heard of in their synagogues and read about in the scriptures, they know that there is a prophet-like person in their midst. The average Jew on the street knows that he has prophet-like qualities, but they don't know that he is the actual Messiah. But this has been exactly what Luke has been doing since the very beginning, so that not only will his most excellent Theophilus know the exact truth as to the identity of the Messiah, but so that we would know as well. The angel Gabriel said of him, that you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High in Luke 1, 32 and 33. The angels declared to the shepherds in the field that there had been a born a Savior who is Christ the Lord in Luke 2, 10 through 11. Simeon, at the temple, he declared that his eyes had seen the salvation of Israel and that a light of revelation has come to the Gentiles when he saw Jesus in Luke chapter 2. Anna, the widow that was there also, she testified and began giving thanks to God when she saw Jesus because she had seen the redemption of Israel coming about when she laid her eyes upon Jesus in Luke chapter 2 as well. John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Messiah in Luke 3.16. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus at his baptism, and the Father affirmed that this was, in fact, his beloved Son in Luke 3.33. Satan even acknowledged him as the Son of God in Luke 4.3, as did the demons when they saw Jesus and acknowledged him as the Son of the Most High God in Luke 8.28. And so we have had this testimony from the lowest of society with those shepherds in the field to the greatest of the Old Testament prophets in John the Baptist. We've had this testimony from the father of lies, Satan, and his legion of demons all the way up to the heavenly host and our heavenly father who rules and reigns in heaven. They're all testifying that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of God. And so now... After all of that, it's time to get personal with the disciples. Jesus asked them in verse 20, and he said to them, Who do you say that I am? This is the point. He's heard the answer from the crowds and the people. He knows what the court of popular opinion says about him. But this is exactly why he is asking his disciples specifically and personally, but who do you say that I am? It's almost as, Jesus, as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, okay, the crowds are confused. They really don't know what to make of me. They can't make up their mind as to who I am and who I've claimed to be. But you, who do you think? What do you think? What do you say? And the question comes to each one of us as well this morning. It is the most important question you will ever have presented to you because Heaven and hell hang in the balance. That's how important this question is. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? How do you fill in that blank, Jesus is, dot, dot, dot? The question is just as personable for you and me as it was for the disciples 2,000 years ago. He doesn't want to know what your parents think about Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to know what your friends say about him. He wants to know that who do you say he is? 
Is he just a means to an end for you? Is he just someone whom you will help to, that you'll just trust to help your kids turn out okay? Is he someone whom you think will just bail you out when times get tough, but you want to just live like the devil the rest of your times? Is he someone whom you treat like a cosmic vending machine, and then when you'll just go to him when you need something? You see, there are millions of people who would be just as content with a heaven if Jesus Christ wasn't there. But you know what the Bible calls a heaven with no Jesus? It calls it hell. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the question for you this morning is, who do you say Jesus is this morning? The disciples will answer correctly. Because Peter, who is usually the spokesman for the disciples, answered and said, the Christ of God. And I don't know why I have it memorized in Matthew 16 in the King James Version, because I didn't read the King James Version ever. But he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He gives it so fully and so richly there. But this is completely opposite to what everyone believed. It is antithetical to what they held in their minds. But he says to Jesus, you are the Christ of God. Now that word Christ there for Jesus Christ is not his last name, okay? Christ is a title. It is an, actually a title of honor and esteem. And people use it blatantly and disrespectfully, not knowing that they're calling him the Messiah. But it is. It's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah or the anointed one. That's what Christ means. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that he is the anointed one of God. He is the one whom God has chosen himself to be prophet, priest, and king. And this is why it is important for you to understand that a rejection of Jesus Christ is a rejection of God himself. This is why it is so important for you and I to understand exactly who Jesus is. Because when they reject Jesus, they're rejecting God. When you tell people about Jesus Christ and you share the gospel with them and they reject what you're saying, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting God. Because it says, Christ of God. Indicating that His origin is from God. That's what Galatians 4.4 says. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. He wasn't some apparition floating around that never took on a human body. He wasn't a created being as if some of the cults claim that He was. But He existed in perfect community in the Trinity from all of eternity past. By Him and through Him and to him are all things. And so when Peter is confessing that Jesus is the Christ of God, he is confessing that he is the divinely appointed Savior that God had always promised to send. His origins are divine. He's not John the Baptist or Elijah or some other prophet risen from the dead, but he is the Holy One of God. To misunderstand that, to diminish that fact in any way, is to bring about the most severe eternal judgment. 1 Corinthians 16.22, 
it says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. We have got to stop right there this morning and pick up verse 21 next week because we're running out of time. But that question needs to be answered by all of us. Can you make the same confession as Peter? Is it clear to you that he has come from God as the scriptures tell us? Is it clear to you that he is the promised Messiah, the deliverer, and the Savior? It's not enough just to have a fascination with Jesus. It's not enough to just admire him as a good, a good moral teacher. It's not enough just to see him as some great prophet of old. There are millions upon millions of people in cults that believe those things about him. But do you love Christ this morning? And you might be sitting there really heavy in your heart saying, you know what, I don't know if I do. Let me tell you right now, you don't love him enough. I don't love him enough. We all need to love him more. And how do you do that? We've got to ask God for that. It's a supernatural love. We can only love him because he first loved us. So are you loving Jesus this morning? Are you resting your life on the fact that he is the one who has come in human flesh, who has died for our sins? who was crucified, buried, and then risen again on the third day, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning in heaven, making intercession for us. Can you say with Peter that Jesus is the Christ of God, that he is my Savior, he is my Redeemer, he is my Lord, and he is my everything? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we we thank you for your goodness to us, and God, I'll be the first to confess to you that I don't love you enough. All of us in this room could say that, Lord. So help us to love you more. Your loving kindness to us abounds from everlasting to everlasting. Your mercies are new to us each and every day. Your faithfulness is great, even when ours is wavering. And Lord, as we listen to the words that you've taken our sin, not the part, but the whole, let us live our lives from this place forward, from this day, as we go through our week, grasping onto that truth, that beautiful truth, that you have separated our sin far from us, as far as from the east is to the west, deeper than any depth of the sea that we know. God, help us to honor you this morning. We thank you for Jesus, the Christ of God. We just pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.